Well, good morning, River City. Uh, good to be with you this morning. My name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you guys for worship this morning as we anticipate uh, Christmas arriving. I don't know about you. My kids are getting very ready for Christmas to be here. And uh, they have, uh, like every day we have a little advent calendar and they keep trying to open more days like than on the day. And I think they think like if we open all the days, then it will be Christmas. But like, it's not really how that works. Anyways, long story short. Uh, good to be with you guys. Grateful to worship with you this morning. Excited as well. Finish up our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning. We are in chapter 13, the very end. We have finally come to the end of the book. But if you are just joining us for the first time or you've been gone, uh, don't worry. I'll catch you back up on the story. You won't be lost. And uh, we'll see what God's word has to teach us this morning. Uh, one of the things that we've tried to talk about throughout the whole book is that from the beginning, what I've tried to, to, tried to emphasize is that, is that Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, is ultimately a story about God. It's, Nehemiah is not a story about a great leader who rebuilds an important wall. Instead, the whole story of Nehemiah is ultimately about a great God who is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. And what we see happening throughout the whole book is that what God's doing is he's using this man, Nehemiah, to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people to forgive them and redeem them and restore them and to once again cause them to be a people who live in God's city in his place for his glory, which is the thing that they were always meant to be and to do. And so we saw in the first half of the book that story begins with God causing this man Nehemiah to have his heart for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of God and ultimately for God's name and his glory, which both of those things were always meant to proclaim. And so we saw in chapter one how Nehemiah's heart breaks because he gets this report from his brother about how the walls of Jerusalem are remain destroyed after a, more than a hundred years of being destroyed by Babylonians and how the people of God who have moved back to the city after almost a century in exile are in great trouble and disgrace and shame in the place. And, and Nehemiah's heart breaks because what he understands and what God's caused him to see is that, is that those things are not just sad things, they're ultimately proclaiming a message of shame and disgrace about God himself because God's city and God's people were always meant to represent him. And so because Nehemiah loves and reveres God's name, but because he loves God's people, he knows that he has to do something about it. We saw in chapter two how after months of praying and planning and seeking God, Nehemiah risks everything by going to this pagan king whom he serves as a cupbearer and asking him to completely reverse his own foreign policy decisions and to uh, not only to approve and fund, but also to endorse the rebuilding efforts in Nehemiah's hometown. And what we saw is that miraculously, uh, he does. This pagan king's all in on Nehemiah's plan to rebuild his hometown because the reality is that it's not Nehemiah's thing, it's God's thing. And so with the clear support not only of the Persian king, but more importantly of God, Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem and he rallies the people there to rebuild the walls of the city and to remove the disgrace that their dilapidated condition is, is putting on them and on God. And we, uh, in spite of all kinds of opposition and threats, what we saw is that they do just that. We read in chapter 6 how amazingly after just 52 days, these walls that have been broken down in piles of rubble for 140 years uh, have been finally rebuilt. 
But the rebuilding didn't stop with the walls because what we saw in the second half of the book is that Nehemiah's goal was never just about rebuilding the walls of God's city, but was always ultimately about rebuilding the community of God's people because it wasn't just the walls that were meant to reflect and reveal the glory and goodness of God. It was the people that lived inside of those walls that were meant to show the world what God was like. And so that's what the whole second half of the book of Nehemiah is about. It's about rebuilding the people of God into a community that reflects and reveals reveals the glory and the goodness of God. And we saw in chapter 8 how that begins as it always does with, uh, with uh, God's people reinstituting God's word as, as their highest right and good authority in their lives. And that leads them, we saw in chapter 9, to humbly confess their sin. And again, in chapter 10, to actually turn from their sin in repentance towards God and making a covenant with one another about all the ways that they wanted to commit to walking in new patterns of obedience towards God. Well, last week we saw the whole story climax at the end of chapter 12 with this joyful worship celebration where God's people aren't just singing songs to God, but they're worshiping in spirit, in truth, because what they're doing is they're dedicating all they are and all they have to God. They're saying, God, we want our city and our families and our community and our finances and everything we have, God, we want it to glorify you. We want it to be set apart for your worship and, and for your praise that the people around us might see and encounter you. And I'll be honest with you, uh, it would be super great if the story of Nehemiah ended at the end of 12. It'd be awesome, right? If there was just kind of this happily ever after, right? Like, oh, and that just kept going forever. It was so great. Everything was awesome, happily ever after. But the reality we're going to see this morning is that it doesn't. Because God's word is not a fairy tale or a propaganda book. It's a true story. And what we're going to see is that you don't put the stuff that happens in chapter 13 in it unless that's what really happened. The truth we're going to come face to face with as we close the book this morning is that while God has indeed proven himself sovereign and faithful to keep his promises, uh, God's people prove themselves altogether unfaithful to keep their own promises. By the end of the chapter, we're going to see that every single one of the promises they made to God and to one another in chapter 10 has been broken, every one of them. And in fact, in some cases, things are even worse than they were before Nehemiah had got there in the first place. Honestly, uh, if she's straight with you, it's a bit of a downer, right? It's not a super encouraging passage as we look at it. But what I want to show you this morning as we study kind of the, the sobering end to this uh, kind of failed reformation, ultimately. What I want to show you is that the bad news at the end of Nehemiah, what it actually does is it leaves us longing for the good news of Christmas. The bad news at the end of Nehemiah, it leaves us longing for the good news of Christmas, for all of his godly faithfulness and steadfast perseverance and sacrificial leadership. Nehemiah leaves us longing for a better leader, not just a temporary governor, but he leaves us longing for a forever kind of king. And what happens is, is, that, is that that makes the message of the angels that they proclaim that first Christmas night, the message of right, good news that will be of great joy to all the people. It makes us, Nehemiah leaves us longing for that message of good news. And the end of Nehemiah actually makes that message good news. And so I can't wait to show you how the bad news in Nehemiah 13 actually makes the message we celebrate at Christmas really actually good news. And so with that in mind, let's pray. 
We'll dive into God's word together. Jesus, we are so grateful for our time together this morning and to come together to remember you and to celebrate you. And God, as we come to study your word, we just we need you to be shaping our hearts. God, and I pray by your spirit and by your grace that you would help us to see uh, the reality of the bad news that we are left with at the end of Nehemiah, but that it would leave us longing and produce in us a joy in the reality that the, the one who it leaves us longing for has come at Christmas. And so God, cause us to be a people who not just understand the bad news of sin, but who see the good news of a Savior as really good news this year, and who therefore are able to have a joy that gives us life and fuels and obedience unto you. And so I can't accomplish any of that. We need you to do it, God, and we pray that you would. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. We read the first couple of verses of this chapter last week. I'm going to reread those, though, for set up a little bit of the context of, of chapter 13 here. So, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food or water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. And when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. And we talked last week about how that's not like an ethnic racism kind of thing, but it's a spiritual purity kind of thing. Because the Ammonites and the Moabites, what you see happening throughout the course of Scripture is that they lead God's people into idolatry, and they lead him away. They lead God's people away from worshiping Him. And so, uh, so that's the context here, right? Verse 4 goes on. Before this, though, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms for the house of our God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah, who you might remember from the early chapters as one of the enemies that, that threatens and mocks and, and that tries to stop the work of the wall. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, uh, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And sometime later, I had asked permission and came back to Jerusalem where I had learned about this evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased. And I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And so I, I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and I stationed them at their posts. All of Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, a Levite named Pedaiah, in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachor, son of Mattaniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. And they were made responsible for distributing, uh, distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. 
In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together uh, with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived, in the, who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing that you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and to guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And I rebuked them and called curses down on them, and I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that some Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalot the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, assigned them duties, each to his own task, and I also made provision for contributions of wood at the designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. All right, like I said, a uh, bit of a downer at the end of chapter 13, right? We find out, verse 6, that, that after 12 years in Jerusalem, Nehemiah had returned to his job with the Persian king as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And after some unknown amount of time, based on uh, what we know about how long travel would have taken and also the lifespan of King Artaxerxes, it was somewhere between probably 1 and 10 years, so not a huge amount of time, but at least a couple of years, Nehemiah, he asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and see how things are going. What Nehemiah finds when he gets back to the city, I can only imagine must have felt just like a punch to the gut. Because while the walls of the city that he helped to rebuild were still standing, that is about all that's left of 12 years of giving his life to rebuilding and revitalizing the city of God and the people therein. 
Not only have God's people gone back on literally everything that they promised to do in chapter 10, but the very enemies that spent the whole first half of the book mocking and ridiculing and threatening and opposing God's work of rebuilding that was happening in this city have somehow now weaseled their way into positions of power and influence with the, in the highest levels amongst God's people. We read in verse 4 and 5 about how Tobiah, who we know from chapter 4, was an Ammonite, who therefore should have been removed from the people of God with the rest of the Ammonites and Moabites for being spiritual enemies of God, who were steadfastly opposed to God and his purposes and his work. Instead of being removed, he's actually been given an office in the temple courts by none other than the high priest himself. And so from the very beginning, what you can see very quickly in chapter 13 is that things are not going well. Right? There is compromise and there is corruption, not just at some bottom levels, but at the very highest levels of, of authority in the people of God. Make matters worse, what you read is that the room that he was given was the room that was formerly used to receive and store the people's tithes and offerings. The key word there is formerly. Formerly, right? Chapter 10, the people had agreed to sacrificially give of their first fruits and of their finances to support the work of the temple and the worship of God in their city. The chapter ended, the end of 10 ended with this resounding, unified promise God's people make. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And in chapter 12, in their worship celebration, you see them following through on those promises and they're giving sacrificially, generously of their first fruits and of their finances. But just one chapter and a couple of years later, all of that has stopped. And here Nehemiah is in verse 11 asking a question I can only imagine he never thought he would have to ask again. Why is the house of God being neglected? Now we don't know when or why or how long it took for God's people to stop giving to their stop giving to God and instead start giving to the enemy, right? But I have a feeling it wasn't overnight. It's probably a slow trickle of change. And I can imagine as well if, that if they would have answered Nehemiah's question honestly, his rhetorical question about why God's house is being neglected, it, it would have gone something like this. Nehemiah, we're neglecting the house of God because Tobiah has something that we need. And so we're providing for him so that he'll provide for us. You see, what they had probably forgotten is that God's the one who has what they need. Not Tobiah and not Nehemiah either. God's the one who provides for them. He's the one who sustains them. He's the one who has what they need. Whatever the reason, we see that because they had stopped giving, the Levites and the musicians who counted on that to literally feed and provide for themselves Right? They had returned to their own fields, right? Because uh, good wishes and, and uh, encouraging thoughts don't put food on the table, right? And so they've returned to their fields because they need to feed themselves and actually provide for themselves. And because the Levites and the musicians were the ones who actually led and orchestrated the worship services, what is clearly inferred is that it's not just that giving has stopped, but that the very worship of God amongst God's people has ground to a halt, and as you read the rest of the passage, what you see is that that reality has had cascading effects on their community. There's no giving, so there's no one to lead worship, and so people go right back to working on the Sabbath. 
Chapter 10, they had promised not only to keep the Sabbath, a day dedicated completely to rest and to worship as an expression of their trust in God and confidence that he was the one who provided for them and that they could hope and trust and rest in him. And so instead of not only doing that, right, they had also said that they were not going to buy goods from those who were working on the Sabbath. And so not only was the Sabbath about them not working, but they said, you know, we're not going to also buy goods from others who are working because what we know is that that's going to lead us down the road that we know it always leads us to where we avoid the Sabbath and avoid keeping it all together. But here in chapter 13, not only are they buying things from the Tyrian merchants that are selling stuff in their city, they themselves are working on the Sabbath. They're treading wine presses and bringing goods into the city for sale in the markets. And Nehemiah again confronts them in verse 18 and he says, guys, is not this the exact same thing? that got us into the predicament that led us to the exile in the first place. Literally, God said, stop doing this or you will end up in exile. And that's what happened. And we are now going back and doing the literal exact same thing that God said and promised and fulfilled would happen if we did. He's like, guys, you really? Are we going back to this? The bad news doesn't stop there. Not only have they stopped giving, and replace the worship of God with work and with the pursuit of financial gain for themselves. We read in verse 20 through to 28 that they have gone right back to marrying people that don't worship God at all. It's gotten so bad that the grandson of the high priest, who is apparently also a priest himself, married a daughter of the sworn enemy of God's people, Sanballat, who again, just like Tobiah, was like one of those guys in the beginning of the whole first half of the book that spent every ounce of their energy and effort trying to stop the rebuilding work of the wall. And here the grandson of the high priest is marrying this guy's daughter, who is an enemy of God. They have skipped fraternizing with the enemy and literally just gone straight to jumping back into bed with the enemy. And the icing on top of this absolutely terrible fruitcake, right, is that is that Nehemiah finds that many of the children of these interfaith marriages don't even speak the Hebrew language anymore, which is a problem because that was the language of the scriptures. And if you cannot read the Bible, then you absolutely will not obey it. And so after just a few short years, a community of people that had given themselves wholeheartedly to worshiping God was half a generation from not even being able to read the scriptures. In less than 10 years, things had gone from bad to great, then back to downright terrible again. Nehemiah, what he comes back to is a straight-up dumpster fire. Right? The story begins, God's people are in trouble and shame and disgrace. And that's where the story ends again. And while the situation is obviously bad, and is quite sobering. I do think that there's a lot that we can take away from the way that Nehemiah responds to all the problems that he sees there, right? The first is simply this. He doesn't walk out 
He doesn't give up on the people. I don't know about you, but if I had come back to the dumpster fire that Nehemiah comes back to after 12 years of sacrificially serving and giving towards the things that were happening in the city, leaving my great job in Persia to come back to the nowhere, know-nothing town of Jerusalem to be questioned and doubted and to go through all the stuff that he went through, only to come back after a couple of years and see that everything that he had worked for had just completely been dismantled. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, you are on your own, fools. I am out. Right? Good luck with not getting smited. Right? I did everything I could for you. We went through all the things I gave. What more do you need? It would have been really hard for me not to, not to do that. But you see, that's not how Nehemiah responds. You see, he loves God and he loves God's people enough to enter into the mess again, again, and to step in to confront the sin that he sees in the community of God and to call for them to live lives of repentance. He's like the loving father we read about in Proverbs chapter 3 who imitates God's own discipline by disciplining those that he loves. See, the reality is that confronting sin in people's lives is absolutely never fun. I have never walked into a conversation with a fellow believer that I've needed to graciously, lovingly confront in their sin and call towards repentance. I have never once walked into those conversations thinking, this is going to be great. I'm so excited. I can't wait to have this difficult conversation. It's going to be so much fun. Not a single time, because they're all hard and they're painful and they're messy, and they are difficult. And the only reason that you enter back into those hard conversations and those awkward situations and those difficult places is if you actually love somebody enough to enter into it with them again. You only are willing to do it if you actually love somebody. And that's what we see happening. Nehemiah, he loves God, and he loves God's people enough not to just walk away. Even after everything that's happened. And so he doesn't walk away, but the second thing that you see is that he doesn't compromise with their sin either. Right? He doesn't leave them and walk away, but he doesn't also compromise with their sin. Three times in the passage we read about how he confronts and rebukes people in their sin, and in each case what we see is that he takes action to restore a right worship and a right obedience to the, to the people. Similar to what we see Jesus doing later in verse 8 and 9, Nehemiah throws Tobiah's crap out of the temple room, and he gives orders to purify those rooms and to restore it to its original purpose. In verse 11, he rebukes the officials for allowing the temple to be neglected and he reinstates the people's giving and he calls the Levites and the musicians back to worship and so that worship services can resume. And verse 17, he confronts the people about ignoring the Sabbath and he takes steps to make sure that people aren't buying and selling goods on the Sabbath. And I love verse 21, right? It says that he, he tells the people who are kind of staying outside the gates, right? He's, he's like, if you come back again, I'm going to arrest you. The ESV, it translates, it says, if you come back again, he says, I'm gonna lay hands on you, right? He's like, we're gonna have a problem. We're going to have a problem if you keep coming back and trying to entice God's people to not to worship him. We're going to have a problem. Verse 25, he rebukes the fathers who allowed their sons and daughters to marry people who didn't worship God. And he makes them take an oath not to do it anymore. He throws out of the priesthood the dude that married their enemy's daughter. 
Nehemiah, he's serious about the people of God being set apart and being holy, being pure for the worship of God. He takes that really seriously. It's not a joke to him. You need to see this. Sometimes it's so easy for us to just make light of sin, that sin's just kind of like a mistake, or you know, like we just need to kind of like do our best and you know, just, you know, just kind of like try hard and, and that'll be fine and God gets it and, and do whatever. But no, what Nehemiah, he refers to the actions that the people are taking. He, he, he doesn't call it a mistake. He doesn't call it, oh, that was a bad decision. He talks about it as evil and wickedness because that's what sin is. It's rebellion. Wicked rebellion against the king of the universe. That's what it really is. And so Nehemiah takes it seriously because God takes it seriously. But even as you look at Nehemiah's zealous actions and the, the steps that he takes to kind of try to get God's people back on the right track, right? And this prioritizing of the holiness of God's people, even as you look at his zealous actions, what you pretty quickly realize is the third thing that you can take away from his response is that he doesn't actually have the power to change anything. He doesn't actually have the power to change anything. He beats people up. He rips out their hair as this act of public shaming, trying to get people to stop sinning. And he forces the people who'd married their children to foreigners to promise not to do it again. And I think we all pretty quickly realize how that's going to work out. Right? It's like when you tell your kid that they need to apologize to their sister for hitting them. Right? And the words are there, but the heart is absolutely not. Right? It's only a matter of time before things go right back to the way that they were. You see, and that's the reality that the book of Nehemiah leaves us with. Not just the book of Nehemiah, that's where the whole Old Testament leaves us with. At the end of the book, which is the chronological end to the whole story of the Old Testament, right? what you are very clearly left with is the harsh and brutal reality that God's people cannot obey God. They cannot do it. Now for all his godly leadership, for all his faithful influence, for all his sacrificial work to serve and to point the people of God back to worshiping God, Nehemiah is not enough. He's not enough. He is not able to break the pattern of rescue and rebellion that we saw God's people reminding themselves about throughout chapter 9 as they recounted their own story. Nehemiah, he leaves us at the end of this book. It leaves us longing for a better leader, not just a temporary governor who can enact some meaningful but short-term changes. He leaves us longing for an eternal king, one who can actually transform the people of God, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. See, church, in the message that we are celebrating every year at Christmas is that the true and better Nehemiah has come. That the one he leaves us longing for has come. 
One who doesn't threaten physical abuse if we don't obey, but one who was physically abused in our place. One who doesn't chase us away in anger, but who actually chases after us in love. One who doesn't curse us when we sin, but who was in fact cursed on a tree for us so that we might receive the blessing that he rightly deserved. One who doesn't just sacrificially give a portion of his life, but who, whose body and blood are poured out completely as a offering and a sacrifice shed for us, one who doesn't just tell us that we need to obey, but one who makes us pure so that we might be given his spirit and actually have the power to do it. That's the one who the angels come proclaiming to shepherds that first Christmas night. That's what makes their message of a Savior such good news. Because the reality is at the end of the Old Testament, what we are so brutally made aware of is that we need a Savior. You need a Savior. You cannot save yourself. And yet in Jesus, the Savior you so desperately needed has come the one that God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3 who would one day defeat Satan and sin and death has come. The one who God promised in Ezekiel 36 would remove their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh and would be the means by which God's spirit comes to dwell within his people and to motivate them towards obedience, not externally, but from the inside. That that Savior has come. Church, the message the angels came proclaiming, the good news that brings great joy, it's only good news if you know you need a Savior. The message that a Savior has come is only good news if you actually need one. And the message you're left with at the end of the, of the Old Testament is that beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's people need a better Savior. They need a better Moses. They need a better Abraham, they need a better Nehemiah. They need one who can actually rescue God's people. Church, I think sometimes what happens for us is that the message of Christmas is old and boring news to us because we've forgotten how much we needed a savior. Throughout the book, what you see happening is that Nehemiah, he prays and he asks God, he says, he asks God over and over to remember him. He says, God, remember all that I've done. Remember what I've done for you and for your people. Remember me. Here is the deal, church. If you stand before God and ask him to remember all the good things you have done, you will be absolutely drowned under a weight that you absolutely cannot bear because there is absolutely no amount of good you could ever do to outweigh your sinful rebellion against the king and creator. What you need is a savior. And when you and I, when we stand before God in judgment, we, our cry will not be, God, remember what we've done. It will be God. Remember. Remember. 
Jesus. Remember all that he did on my behalf. He is the savior that I so desperately needed. My hope is not in what I have accomplished, but it's only found in him. That's where our only hope will lie on that day. And the good news of the gospel that we cling to tightly on that day is the good news of the gospel that we will celebrate and remember every week as we take communion. We're reminding ourselves that God himself sacrificed his own body and blood, given, shed for us to pay the penalty for our sin, that the Savior we so desperately needed had come, and that by faith in him we receive his salvation. And so communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you, and it doesn't change your status and your standing with God. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember, to remember all that Jesus has done to remember that you so desperately needed a Savior and that in Jesus, the Savior you needed came. That's what we celebrate at communion. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Savior that we needed has came, has come. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have trusted him to be your Savior, if you have surrendered to him as Lord and King, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one in the left and one on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood broken for you, or you can take the pack back to your seat and do so. And you don't need to be a member here, you just need to have trusted Jesus, to have, to have proclaimed that you are in need of a Savior, and that he is the only one that can save. But if you're here this morning, and you're not there yet, you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, and you're still wrestling with the idea maybe that you might even need a Savior in the first place. I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's not after just doing the things we think we're supposed to do. He wants us to give our hearts to him and to receive by faith the offer of salvation that he alone can give. And so if this morning for the first time you put your trust in Jesus to be the Savior that you needed, to be the one who can rescue you from your sin, the one who can forgive you, the one who can renew you, the one who can transform you from the inside out, then go back during our time of worship and take communion. Do it as a joy. But for all of us, I want to close our time in Nehemiah by reminding you about the scene that Nehemiah ultimately sets forward for us. You see, while Nehemiah ends with bad news, the Bible as a whole does not. We read at the very end in Revelation chapter 21, John with this vision of heaven, he says it this way. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
church, we live in the in-between. We have a hope because of Jesus' life and death on our behalf. But ultimately, we still wrestle with sin, don't we? But one day, the hope that we anticipate is not just Jesus' first coming, but his second. And that when he returns, he will set all things to the way that they should be. And the renewed, rebuilt city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day will see what was always pointing to the renewed, rebuilt, forever city of God where God himself doesn't send a representative on his behalf like he does with Nehemiah, but where God himself dwells with his people. And so in hope, in faith, might we be a people that live with that day in sight every day that we might be a people who responding to God's grace and mercy, his relentless forgiveness for us, might be a people who are committed to lives of holiness and obedience unto him. Ones who don't take sin lightly, but take it seriously. Because what we realize is that we are God's people, bought with a price, set apart for him. And might we live with the hope of that renewed city, where God himself dwells with his people as the thing that our hearts are set on. And we live with that every day. And the reality is, is that God is a God who always keeps his promises. In Christmas, he kept his promise to come and be the savior we needed. And you can count on him to keep his promise to come again. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful for your word this morning. And in the midst of all of the bad news of Nehemiah 13 and the clear reality that we so desperately need a Savior because we cannot save ourselves, God, would the good news of Christmas that a Savior has been born, would it be good news again to us, God? God, might the reminder that we needed saving and that you, our Savior, has come. Might it fuel a joy in us that leads us to lives of obedience unto you. That leaves us out of gratitude for who you are and all that you've done for us and out of a hope for being with you ultimately one day. Might we be a people fueled by joy to live lives of worship and obedience unto you, we pray. Amen.